just making a reveal. Making a reveal. returning to vampires with my guest Damien Bartlett. Damien was with me the last time we discussed vampires and he was raring for more, so I hope you enjoy this blood-sucking podcast. Uh, go into this knowing that there will be spoilers for the movies discussed as well as coarse language, and I think you should get through it just fine. Please write feedback to review at gmail.com, seek us out on Facebook and iTunes, and check out the website at rankandreview.ca. My name's Larry Parsons, I'm your host and Random Canadian. Welcome to episode 44 of Rank and Review with my returning vampire professional, <laughs> Damien Bartlett. Thank you for coming on this rainy, wintry day. <laughs> Thank you for having me. It's delight trudging through the urban tundra that we know as Siberia West. <laughs> yes. It's early yet, though, with all this rain. We're getting April weather, weather in it, and it's not quite April, so you know, don't get too used to it. It's okay. I, I realize the Saskatchewan is kind of dyslexic and bipolar and, uh, you know, drunk. If you don't like the weather, wait five minutes. Exactly! <laughs> so you're back again, and once again with vampires. Yes. We talked about it a little bit last time. I mean, the, the vampires are sort of the quintessential definition of sort of sex and violence in one package. Mm-hmm. But uh, is there anything I want to elucidate on? Is watching 12 of these now for my podcast, is there some epiphany been reached as to why the vampire remains so appealing? I'm not really sure. I, I just, I, I find it, they're fascinating creatures because they just kind of break the line of what it is to be human sometimes and it's like here's where humans are and here's where humans are not and people just sort of like we, we watch them as uh, uh, as creatures and, and we see parts of ourselves in them and then parts that are definitely not ourselves and then we get to decide which we want to keep yeah I, I think a lot of people get sort of entranced by the element of humanity, the romance aspect of the, the, the creature, you know, mm-hmm. that can lure you in. But once again, I think I said this last time, I, I'm more of like a 30 days of night type of uh-huh. guy. I like me a mean, aggressive, who's going to eat you, he's not going to fall in love with your daughter. Right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> As I firmly stated before, you don't date vampires, you kill them. Yes. Werewolves? You date werewolves. You date werewolves. Okay. Yes. Good to know. <laughs> Good to know. Um... <laughs> It's interesting because, like, right now we're at the sort of end of a big wave of zombiness, right? So there's there's oh, still yeah. a few twitchy death nerves here. I guess there's a couple more mainstream zombie movies to come out yet. And, uh, but, you know, Walking Dead's on season five. There's a spinoff on its way. Uh, I feel like that they're going to have to move on to another sort of focus, uh, be it a supernatural one or they're going to bring back werewolves. But it seems it goes in stages. They, they it get does. All, they'll get hung up on ghosts for a while, and they'll get hung up on werewolves for a while. Right now they're hung up on, on, on zombies. Which is just your place. Which is, which is good for me. But the thing I'm going to say about all this is throughout it all, you can always count on there being a vampire movie. Oh, At least one or two yes. a year. It's not even that they sort of peak and, and, and yeah, they, 
the Twilight franchise definitely helped to repopularize them a little bit, but uh, you can they're they're ubiquitous. Yeah, you're yeah. always going to be able to find another vampire movie if that's your thing. And I mean, yeah, that's I, a good and bad thing, I guess. <laughs> you walk into a gay club at Halloween, and the default is vampire. So there you go. <laughs> Well, sexy Hall- vampire. Sexy vampire. But that's exactly what vampires are, isn't it? I, I, I get tired of people complaining about the sexy thing at Halloween. Unless you're talking about your kid. I mean, if you're dressing up your little kid as a sexy vampire and she's eight, well, that's not cool. No, no, no. No. <laughs> but I thought part of the awesomeness of Halloween was that everybody dressed really, really trashy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there's nothing wrong with it. I'm all for it. I, I take mean... it as a positive thing. Personally. Oh, yeah. No, no. The less clothes, the better. And I have to say, and maybe this is a weird confession, and a lot of the Dracula movies, you know, there'll be the sort of subservient female, mm-hmm. uh, you know, right, that sort of is his muscle. Yeah. That, that do a lot of the killing or that are sort of, you know, his little toys. Yeah. And they're evil and they usually have bloodshot eyes and fangs and hiss, and I always find them super sexy. <laughs> So, I don't know what that's about, or what that says about me. You're like, oh baby, oh, yes. I, I yeah, I, I would probably be able to be seduced. <laughs> the, the red eyes and the fangs are a giveaway, but damn. Damn, those you, curves. If you throw in a Hungarian or some kind of European accent on top of it, I'm done. Yeah, it's like, <laughs> all right, Larry's a write-off. <laughs> Everybody run. They're going to be eating Larry for a while. It's like, you don't have to run faster than anybody but Larry. Indeed, and I don't run that fast. <laughs> um, okay, well, let's let's list off the movies we're going to talk about today. Let's get to it. Um, unless there's anything else you want to do in way of uh, preamble. No, this is fantastic. Excellent. Um, as usual, you can expect spoilers and coarse language throughout the podcast. Plenty. Lots. <laughs> um, and I do want to actually drop an extra flag, since we are doing a couple of sequels in this bunch, we may necessarily have to spoil a little bit of the previous movie as well. Right? Sorry, you're going to have to suck it. <laughs> yeah. Um, so we have, from Robert Rodriguez and screenwriter Quentin Tarantino, From Dusk Till Dawn. Sort of a, a scuzzy road criminal fest that sort of slowly evolves into a batshit crazy vampire movie. Slowly is a loose word in this <laughs> okay, case. Well, we will discuss... Um, from one of my favorite directors, Guillermo del Toro, comes Blade 2. Um, and if it sounds like there's pain in my voice, it's because I love, I love Guillermo so much. Me too. And, uh, this is not his finest hour. But not at all. I understand why he did it, so. Beep, um, beep. And then we're gonna look at, uh, Paul Bettany starring in Priest, which is sort of a post-apocalyptic vampire meets Mad Wolf Max type of vibe. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, we have a low-budget vampire movie. I like to at least have one or two movies in the list that weren't made for, you know, $25 million. Right. Um, and that's Prowl. Uh, this is about a bunch of kids who end up thrown in the back of a semi-trailer and uh, dropped off in some sort of crazy vampire hunting ground. Because that's always a good idea. <laughs> Should be happening. <laughs> Uh, we have Day Watch, a, a German film sequel to a Night Watch, uh, another visual feast from Timur Bekmemenov. I hope I said that right. Mm-hmm. And last but not least, we have Cake Beckinsale and Leather. I mean, uh, <laughs> Underworld. <laughs> I apologize. <laughs> that is one of the more appealing aspects of that movie, though. I'm not gonna lie. Indeed. At least for me. At least for me. Um, so those are the six movies that we're gonna look at, and they're. 
different takes. I think each of them are a little bit different. Like, they're not your standard, I guess last time we did, like, Near Dark and, like, the 70s mm-hmm. Dracula and even Shadow of the Vampire. It all yeah. sort of very traditional rules. Classics. Uh, the traditional rule of the vampire. Right. You know? Um, these ones they're trying because there is so many vampire movies they're trying something a little different and uh, to what degree of success we shall discuss yes we shall everybody be cool you be cool somewhere in the middle of nowhere low profile you understand the meaning of the words low profile sure two of America's most dangerous criminals have taken hostages what is this it's called a punch. I'm going to ask you one question, and all I want is a yes or no answer. Do you want to live through this? Yes. Okay, ramblers, let's get rambling. One night is all that stands between them and freedom. This is my kind of place. But it's going to be one hell of a night. Okay, I'm going to start really weird. We're going to start really weird. Let's go off the um, deep end. Robert Rodriguez uh, was sort of new to Hollywood when uh, this movie came out, but Quentin Tarantino was impressed enough with his work with El Mariachi and uh, Desperado. Um, I can't remember if Faculty was out by now or not. Faculty might have followed this. Anyway, mm-hmm. uh, Tarantino was a fan, and he had this uh, script on ice. I guess he'd been hired to write it, but it had never gotten produced. Mm-hmm. And he buddied up with Rodriguez and let's make From Dust Till Dawn. The catch here is that it's only kind of half a vampire movie. Really, the first half of the movie is sort of a road crime Tarantino flick. Yeah. And the second half of the movie is a batshit crazy Return of the Living Dead sort of like uh, throw everything at the fan that you can. Yeah. Uh, bloodletting cartoon. Yeah. And the weirdness of the movie is how comfortable or uncomfortable that that marriage is. Yeah. The other wild card for me, although I have people who disagree, is I'm sure that, I don't know this, but I'm sure Tarantino insisted, if this was to be made, that he got to play the evil uh, Gecko brother. Yeah. And so Tarantino has a fairly significant supporting role in the movie. In his other Tarantino joints, he's often in it for a scene. And you can kind of smile and say, oh, there's Tarantino. Yeah, yeah. But it's interesting and maybe distracting to see him take up this much of the movie. Yeah. That said, I do have a guilty pleasure response to this movie. Uh Um, But I'm totally willing to hear a second opinion. (laughs) For sure. (laughs) Um, No, I enjoyed it. it. It is definitely a movie that makes you go, what the hell is going on? Um, I remember famously uh, hearing the story from Lee Beckman and his friend Raven. They were watching the movie in the theater, and Raven goes to the bathroom at the five-minute mark (laughs) where everything changes. And she comes back to a completely different movie and is looking at Lee going, what the fuck is going on? (laughs) And that's kind of really a good way to describe this movie. It's kind of like, what the fuck's going on? Um... It is. It's really disturbing because, like, Tarantino's character, like, um, uh, oh god, I'm blanking. Um, George Clooney is, is pretty much his brother's keeper. He's yeah. trying to keep this absolute loose cannon in check, who's all over the place and definitely several marbles short of a bag <laughs> of of sanity. Uh, he he hears what he wants to hear, and it's not pretty. 
we are introduced to the Gecko brothers. They're already on the lam, having made a very dramatic courtroom escape. Uh, Tarantino busted George Clooney out uh, from the courthouse, and a lot of people were killed, and they have a hostage in the back trunk. The movie doesn't make any bones about the fact that the Gecko brothers are bad. Oh, yeah. Tarantino <laughs> is just significantly worse than George Clooney. Um, but I do think it's one of the actually few genuinely smart touches of the movie uh, that we will get into. The plot, actually, once uh, they've lost their hostage because Tarantino went all sexy crazy. <laughs> and, sexy crazy, indeed. And, uh, and presumably raped and killed that poor woman. We didn't actually get a good look at what happened, I'm grateful no, to say. It was, it was the way they done it stylistically. It was a bunch of flashes and yeah. you're just like, oh god, what, what am I seeing? But it set up the danger of that character. As bad as George Clooney was, the real thing to fear was the Tarantino character. Yeah. So when they end up taking this family hostage to try and uh, get them, slip them over the Mexico border... There's some real stakes, especially with the teenager, the, I guess, 20-something daughter. Mm -hmm. It seems like Juliette Lewis is always, to me, the teenage girl that she played in Cape Fear. No yep. matter how old she gets, she still looks and sounds like that teenage girl she played in Cape Fear to me. Forever. <laughs> yes. But, I mean, she's aging very gracefully. We'll give her that. Um, so, yeah, that's basically <laughs> the, the bulk of the first half of the movie, is these guys taking this family hostage and getting over the border. And... Um, it's, it's engaging and it's interesting, but no vampires to be seen anywhere. And the world, as sort of goofy and silly as it is, still seems to at least be uh, have one foot grounded in a partial reality anyway. Yeah. Harvey Keitel, that's the actor, right? Yep. Who plays the father of the family that is captured. He, uh, he plays a priest who has lost his faith and yep. he's just kind of like going on a search because his wife died and he's just decided to go on this cross-country trip with his family yeah. and they could have stayed happily in their big giant you uh humvee whatever giant bus that they were in and no 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 let's stay in a rat shit <laughs> hotel on the way to podunk nowhere in mexico yeah. where they run across the gecko brothers yeah. and then shenanigans yeah uh, I think, and I've argued with friends about this, that the family was more or less doomed at the time the Gecko Brothers picked them up. I've had people tell me that the George Clooney character was a, was a straight shooter and that probably he would let them go. But there's an interesting thing that happens right before everything turns ugly. George Clooney gets to the Titty Twister bar and he's slamming back shots and uh, seems really agitated and almost looking to pick a fight with someone at the bar. Yeah. And the Harvey Keitel <laughs> character and he have an exchange where he says, are you some kind of a fucking idiot that yeah. doesn't know when he's won? You're across the border. You're, you're where you want to be. You're safe. Yeah. I'm the guy in peril and you're the guy who's acting like a, like irrationally. Exactly. And there's this little look that George Clooney gives him and he lifts the glass and says, to your family. And right there I thought, these guys were dead. These guys were dead. Once they got them across the border, at this point, how many people had they killed to get yeah. to where they are? Why leave living witnesses at that point, right? Yeah. But we want to like Clooney because it's George Clooney. And this was sort of his big stepping onto the stage as far as a movie star. Right? After ER, yeah, yes. Yeah, he'd been in ER and he'd done <laughs> you know, a lot of television and he'd been in some terrible movies in the 80s. Yeah. But, you know, he's got some fun, you know, cheesy macho dialogue and uh, a cool tattoo, and he carries the movie. But I really like that they allowed him that much edge. Yeah. I personally think that 
he did intend to kill that family. He kind of bonds with them because they have to face off against this horde of vampires, which we have still yet to get to. We haven't even gotten to that point yet. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I think that that was kind of an interesting approach. That was probably a moment. You know what? That was probably, like... I, I would actually, now thinking about it, would agree with you because he was probably antsy and angry and he was probably about to make that decision and Harvey Keitel said, no, you won. And he's like, you know what? I don't have to. Yeah. It's okay. And so him saying to your family, he probably was saying, you get to live. Maybe. Maybe. I don't know. It's hard. It's a hard read. Uh, as far as Tarantino is concerned, his character would happily, merrily kill them. All of them. <laughs> yeah. All of them. And dance in their blood and body parts and, and sing la 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 while raising his skirt over his head like a schoolgirl. But the turning point of the movie, and I do think it's where the movie starts to get noticeably less good, <laughs> yeah. is a monologue given by... Sir Cheech Marin. Oh, yes. Uh, outside of the Titty Twister bar where he's screaming, Pussy, pussy, pussy! Classic, uh, classic. We have the cheapest pussy in the world. If you can find cheaper pussy, fuck it. Yeah. And it's that Tarantino really uncomfortable humor that, you know, a lot of the hardcore Tarantino fans cackle at. Yeah. But it, the movie ha didn't have a lot of that at that point, And to mm. suddenly be thrown into that, it seemed kind of jarring. I was like, oh, Tarantino, dial it back a little bit, buddy. Seriously. But then we get into the bar, and things are a little bit stranger. <laughs> like we say, George Clooney starts acting a little uncharacteristic. And then enter Selma Hayek. It was almost like the evil was causing the change in everybody. Or this show was going to say, oh, you guys are a bunch of badasses in this titty twister bar in the middle of nowhere, and you think you guys are bad. We're going to show you what bad is, right? Enter Selma Hayek. And she, especially at this time in her career... Almost doesn't look real. She's no. like a cartoon superhero. Like, she is yeah. unbelievably beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> and there is, I swear, an almost five-minute sequence where we are asked to do nothing but ogle her. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> and, uh, again, I mean, I see what they're going for, and it's appropriate for the environment, but I, I start sort of shifting in my seat. <laughs> it's like, is this really, really necessary? What are we learning here? But, again, I, I can close my eyes and see it right now. <laughs> yeah. I like to call her Deus Ex Shitstorm. Yeah. And, um, basically, she vamps out at the climax of her performance mm -hmm. and kills the Quentin Tarantino character. Yeah. And no tears are shed. And None. Pretty much all the staff of the bar vamp out and the new movie starts. Yes, it does. There was some, like I said, grounded reality before this, but now we're being introduced to characters who are named Sex Machine. Yep. Played by Tom Savini, who has a gun that could not shoot, that launches out of his, uh, his crotch. <laughs> his crotch. Really bizarre. Like, just like, I guess it's an amusing design, but in no way convincing. Who has that whole Vietnam speech. Yep. Which is, like, it has to be deliberately stupid and cheesy. Like, there's no reason... Wait, we don't know this character. We don't care about this emotional speech. The fact that everybody stops to listen to him make this speech, it's like a half-assed Quint speech from Jaws. Yeah. And then he's killed off for a laugh. We have vampires disintegrating and their eyes falling out and rolling perfectly into the pockets of the pool table. Yeah. We have, like... <clears throat> Ju I can't even adequately articulate the insanity. It turns into dead alive all of a sudden. Yeah, I was about to say, the gore level is almost dead alive. Almost. almost. <laughs> yes. Nothing has quite touched that level. <laughs> oh, that. Um, 
But I couldn't help but sort of miss the somewhat real vibe and stakes that I had beforehand. Yeah. Because at this point, even once some of our main characters start killing off, get killed off, like, I just don't care anymore. It's turning into a splatter fest. Yeah. I'm entertained by it. I've mm-hmm. got a bemused, what the fuck, smile on my face. And I, I, I'm not saying it's a bad movie, but I think that it's, the fact that its mission was to constantly keep you disoriented. I mean, they did that effectively, but I don't know if that made it cohesive as a full piece, you know? Mm-hmm. It's ambitious. They were trying something. They definitely were. It's definitely memorable, at least for that. Yeah. But it's a hard, it's a hard thing to like, <laughs> I liked it, but it's not that great. Yeah. It's weird. Like, this really is kind of a two-star movie that I'm giving like a three-star review in a lot of ways. <laughs> um, it's not Tarantino's <laughs> finest screenplay by no. a good stretch. No, no, no. And um, the fact that it does get so silly takes away any of the weight from the first half of the movie. So when you watch it again, the first half seems even more incongruous, you know? It's like, what is going on here? But Rodriguez, again, proves that he's very proficient behind the camera. And yes, Tarantino, is. again, proves that he's very uncomfortable in front of it. <laughs> I think you're allowed to have one awkward movie. Or, or as they say, uh, there was a director, I can't remember his name, but he says, you have at least ten bad movies as a director. Mm-hmm. You just need to get out of your system. And then you can actually start getting to the good, good stuff. stuff. So maybe well, this was one of these little poopers that Tarantino had to get out of his system like well, a bad gallstone. I'm talking more about his acting. Because oh, even okay. in, in, his, in his films, he'll put himself in for one-scene roles. And in... Pulp Fiction, even like he's yes. clearly like whiny, nasally Tarantino, but for the scene that he's in, it's fine. It's fine. He's got a very questionable Australian accent in the one scene role he has in Django Unchained, mm. but at least it's just one scene, and you know, sort of. There's something about directors that do this. M. Night Shyamalan does it too. He'll give himself a small role in his films. I'm I'm sorry, Shyamalan. You have proved again and again that you're not Alfred Hitchcock. <laughs> you know, and uh, I don't know. I think that you should play to your strengths. And yeah. Tarantino is a writer. Mm-hmm. And he's a good director, too. But really, I think he's a writer. <laughs> <laughs> um, if he wanted to retire from uh, directing films and just dedicate himself to writing scripts, I would be completely okay with that. And they would be fantastic. Because I know people bow to the altar <laughs> of, of Tarantino. But I do think, as good as his movies are and as entertaining as a lot of the stuff he does, is it's a mix of borrowed elements. Mm-hmm. He's just a guy like me who's watched a shit ton of movies, and he makes a collage out of movies he likes. And he's a fanboy, and he gives it the attention that it needs, and I've, I've been pretty happy with a lot of his work. But if you're end, into Tarantino, you've already watched the movie. Yeah, <laughs> you've obviously seen this, and, and you'll have watched it, whether you approve of it or not, or like it or not, you'll have watched it. So It's, it's worth a look. It is. It's worth a look. There's a world beyond the one we know, where the powers of darkness fear nothing but one man. Stop! Blade. We represent the ruling body of the Vampire Nation. They're offering you a truce. They want to meet with you. You sure about this? They'll take us in deeper than we've ever been. Now, those he has sworn to kill need his help to fight a new breed of terror. 
They're no longer top of the food chain. Our forces are ready to fight, but we need a leader. Okay, we get so for the second review, we're going to look at Blade 2. Um, and yes, as I said, spoilers for Blade 2 and spoilers for the original Blade. Because uh, one of the sequel-itis things that I will blame on the screenplay, which is by David Goyer, who contributed to the new Batman movies and oh, is wow. like a fairly respected screenwriter mm -hmm. for some reason. Um, <laughs> <laughs> they killed off this Chris Christopherson character in the first movie. Whistler, I guess the character's name. He's sort of an old-school vampire killer who's sort of Blade's right-hand man. Yeah. And he was definitively, like, he was killed in the first movie. Yeah, definitively. And they bring him back for this one. Just sort of shug it off. It's one of those sort of really sloppy, casual things like, well, people like Chris Christopherson, so we're going to bring him back for this next movie. We're going to give really loose means in which he comes back. Yeah. Um, the basic premise of this, uh, Blade having rescued his buddy Whistler from the clutches of vampires, but still not sure if Whistler is still Whistler, uh, has a new sidekick played by The Walking Dead's Norman Reedus, mm -hmm. um, who's a preferred actor of my wife. <laughs> um, they get approached by vampires. The vampires knock on Blade's door, figuratively, not the literally. Shadow Council, yeah. they are called. And uh, they let him know look, you are my enemy. We are enemies. We're not going to pretend that's not the case. But a new threat has entered the horizon, and we need muscle. And your muscle. <laughs> the threat that they speak of are these reaper creatures, which uh, feed on vampires, are immensely powerful, but have a really serious problematic drawback. Uh, they feed on vampires and people the way junkies kind of crave smack or heroin. Like, yeah. at least once a day they need a fix. So their population is growing rapidly, and they're going to run out of the underground vampires very quickly, and humanity will be next. And humanity is delicious. Indeed. So Blade is put in the weird position of having to team up with his sworn enemy and uh, fight off these Reapers. And enter the Blood Pack. Yeah. Uh, Guillermo del, del Toro, I, I, I love the hell of the man. And yes. He did bring amazing production value <clears throat> to a lot of the action sequences. Mm -hmm. And he brought his sort of right-hand man, Ron Perlman, to play a badass vampire. I love Ron and, Perlman. And he has probably the most inter entertaining character in this particular movie. Mm -hmm. um, the flaws in Blade Two, like with most sequels, are sort of uh, the repetition content thing where mm -hmm. you know we've seen this all before yeah <laughs> um my problem with the blade franchise and this is true of part two and mm -hmm. of part one and especially of part three right and it's a similar problem actually i have with the riddick movies mm -hmm. is that blade is so busy looking cool yeah and being badass and I, i'm not against one-liners you can drop some one-liners i understand we're in a fantasy marvel universe yeah but he's never frightened. He's never intimidated. He never feels threatened. He never seems worried like the stakes are so high that he's not going to not only survive this, but look fucking badass doing it. Yeah. And because Blade is never scared, I can never be scared, you know? It's true. He's, it's, like, it's like I'm seeing behind the mask. This is a movie and it's all going to work out okay. And I know that from the few, first few seconds that I see Blade. And most of his accomplishments uh, are either ridiculous conveniences of the screenplay <laughs> or random spoilers later in the movie he realizes that his new sidekick is actually a familiar to the vampires yeah sort of a spy 
and he drops this line, I knew you was that from the second I saw you. Like, he was always in on it. Like, Blade, at no point is the wool ever over Blade's eyes. No. The fact that he is such an indestructible, unfazable, you know, character, just doesn't, no enemy seems to be a fair balance to him. No, nothing. He just mows them down. Yeah. Even when they capture him, it doesn't matter. Yeah. And this fish out of water issue with having to deal with the vampires probably should have been more interesting than it was. Yeah. But I just kept on waiting for the Reapers to show up because the Reapers looked pretty cool. <laughs> the Reapers were fantastic. They were exquisite monsters. Um, the Reapers had jaws that would split in half and they had like pseudopod tendril tongues that lashed out and stabbed you. They had venom. They would paralyze the vampires. They were just... The vampire killing machines that were glorious. And unlike the other vampires who will have a conversation with you, <laughs> these guys are all business. All business. It's time to eat. Your face is delicious. Okay, um, there's a very climactic, apocalyptic sort of sequence that happens in the sewers. Mm-hmm. Okay. I understand this is sort of a science fiction comic book movie, so I shouldn't be picking on like a lot of the logic problems. They have these... What do they call them? Solar grenades? Yes. That he can drop and they'll blow up and they'll have a, a light force equal to the intensity of the sun and yeah. any vampire in the area <clears throat> will be killed by it. Yeah. There's a sequence at the end of this movie and I, I, I might have... My love of Guillermo del Toro might have got me through this. I might have said, it's a Blade movie but Guillermo directed it so you should watch it. But yeah. I can't really say that because mm-hmm. it is so epically stupid yes. in the climactic I moment. think I know exactly what you're talking about. He drops a bag of these grenades in the center of this main chamber, and it explodes. And he and his uh, vampire pseudo-girlfriend are running away from it, mm-hmm. uh, down through these tunnels mm-hmm. of, the, of the sewer. And the light is sort of volleying behind them. Yeah. This implies that A, Blade and his vampire girlfriend are running faster than the speed of light. Yep. And B, that light goes around corners. Yep. Oh, and see, light apparently is impermeable to water. Yes, if you dunk yourself underwater, that doesn't count. You're fine. Yeah. There's just so much stupid all at the same time that I just have to, like, throw my hands up in the air and go, Fuck! Really? (laughs) Did you actually do that? Like, uh, because I wanted to like this movie, mainly because Guillermo, I mean... There was some superficial enjoyment out of the first Blade if you turned the sound off and just watched it as a visual movie. Like, there's the... Sprinkler system in the first movie that pours blood on. Yeah, all the that was that was an amazing sequence right there. Like a pretty good sword play and some mm-hmm. good fights and whatnot, but the screenplay just hurt my ears. But oh. from a visual level, it was pretty solid. Yeah, and uh, I think that Blade Two, if anything, improves on that. But mm-hmm. the script is terrible, and it's all built around Wesley Snipes, who you know what? Once upon a time, was a fucking fantastic actor. Yes. I don't know, like, I don't, I don't know if he was too famous for too long. It's one of these things where, you know, fame didn't, and wealth didn't agree with him, but he stopped, you know, paying his taxes, did some time in jail, and uh, the movies that he agreed to do seemed more about making Wesley Snipes look cool than showing us what a fantastic actor he was. Yeah, maybe the fame got to his head, which is Go back, look at movies like New Jack City, look at movies like The Water Dance, look mm-hmm. at, like, some of his <clears throat> early performances. He should be... You know, Morgan Freeman or, or uh, you know, Denzel Washington level, you know, big star. And uh, because he chooses movies like this and because he clearly has a real ego that the Blade character kind of agrees with, 
it, you know, this is where he's ended up. And it seems like such wasted potential. And that summation of Wesley Snipes is kind of my summation of the Blade franchise. It yeah. just seems to me to be a well of wasted potential. Uh, but I'm in the minority because the all of the three Blade movies made lots of money. Oh <laughs> well, it, I mean they were they they were designed to make money. They were supposed to be visually stunning, um, exceptional, like you said, visual swordplay. Like the the combat sequences were exquisite. Um, it was a stage combat wet dream it was just amazing um there was some over-the-top silliness with like the giant flying pile driver at the end with the head reaper Mm -hmm. character who that guy by the way did better acting in this movie than blade did yeah he was a lot more sympathetic i i felt a little bit for him because he was put into an unfortunate set of circumstances by being transformed into this creature by his own father who could would sacrifice any of his children for a dollar down yeah. the river. Yeah. Um, I felt more sympathy for him. I'm like, I like this guy, you know? I, I, I Like, when he was... I don't agree with him, but I guess I sort of understand him. But <laughs> the, the problem is, is that I liked him more than I liked Blade, and so, I mean, there's... I mean, I, that's a testimony to I like to Ron me. Perlman more than I liked Oh, God, Ron, Ron Perlman. Ron Perlman was like a total cocksword to the whole movie. He was just a dick. Dick, but, and you loved him. But he was, he was enjoying it. He was enjoying his Cooper role. And, you know, he's got this spike plucked to the back yeah, of his head yeah. to keep him in check the whole time. And, uh, I, I like that angle to it. When the vampires first come to confront Blade, they mm-hmm. come with their swords out because, you know, Blade typically kills them. But there's this really cool acrobatic sequence where they're sort of, like, flipping through him. Mm-hmm. Like, and, like, that's Guillermo del Toro showing us that he is a great visual filmmaker. Yeah. And he does that here, but... The script doesn't help him, and his star is an empty vessel. Yeah. There's a couple things, there's a couple little bright moments. Um, When Wesley Snipes removes his glove to touch the girl, that's sort of a traditional symbolic, you know, revealing of intentions. That's about as much emotion as (laughs) Wesley gets, and that's probably because he was directed to take off his glove, and that's like a thing. Um, That's about as close as he gets to actual any feelings. Tragic underuse, excuse me. Tragic underuse of Donnie Yen. Um, his character gets snuffed brutally by the massive light hammer. Yeah. Um, Donnie Yen, who had starred previously in Iron pa- or Iron Monkey, which is amazing. <laughs> yeah. Hong Kong flick, so good. Just like and better acting there, but he's like, mm. like you got a great actor. Uh, and what else was about that? Yeah, just there was. Eh. There was. I didn't get any emotion from from Blade. Ever, no. Anywhere in the movie. Like, he rescues his friend Whistler and is initially, immediately super suspicious of him, you know? Uh, he spent years trying to get this guy. You'd think when the reunion, at least, would have some sort of emotional punch to it. Yeah. Nope. No. And... Uh, the closest we get is when his vampire pseudo-girlfriend is killed towards the end of the movie. That... He seems more disappointed than <laughs> genuinely crushed. Which, to... Uh... Gail Dottormo's um, credit, that was a beautiful death. Mm-hmm. That was truly beautiful. She got to see the sun. Yeah, and it's how she sort of disintegrated. It was just exquisite. But well, yeah. I've seen this before, obviously. Yeah, in yeah. Days of Night. I'm sure there's plenty of examples of it. Yeah, I know. I, I mean, watched it in Near Dark. Similar things. Exactly. You know? Although those ones were like hydrogen bombs. So <laughs> <laughs> Hydrogen bomb vampires. One fun little point... Um, 
one of the other vampires of the blood pack, I can't remember his name, he didn't take a liking to Whistler at all. And uh, Whistler had said something, and he had the famous line, he's like, listen, shit kicker, you're one cunt hair away from hillbilly heaven. <laughs> so, memorable little things like that, but otherwise... <laughs> this was before Marvel had really... Well, I mean, they didn't have Marvel Studios. They were just sort of no. branding out their, their characters. But especially seeing where Marvel has gone since this, like... Mm-hmm. They did. I think that the Ghost Rider franchise is better handled than Blade. That's how pissy I am about oh, the Blade. Because sh- the Blade franchise had a chance of being pretty awesome. I yeah. think. I think that Ghost Rider was always going to be have one foot in stupid, just because it's the comic book thing. Yeah. You, seeing Superman wearing the tights in the comic book is fine. Seeing it in a movie seems strange. Mm-hmm. Seeing a burning skull faced demon chasing people is cool in a comic book. But when you see it in a movie, all of a sudden you realize this is silly. This is a little <laughs> bit weird. Um, this is unfortunate. And um, I, I'm looking forward to 10 or 15 years from now when they reboot it, because they will. And I can't imagine them doing worse. True. Forgive me, Father. I had the dream again. About the war. The devil comes in many shapes, many shapes, many shapes. The war is long over. You and the other priests did your jobs. citizens have complete faith in the church's ability to keep them safe. Get her down below! Whatever you hear, don't scream. All right, we're going to talk about uh, Priest. Now, um, this is directed by Scott Stewart, and he must have a good relationship with Paul Bettany because previous to this, he had worked with Paul Bettany on a movie called Legion. Yes. <laughs> um... <clears throat> Paul Bettany, very skilled actor, abtacular. Mm-hmm. I kind of resent him for taking Jennifer Connelly off the market. <laughs> and having multiple babies with her. Yeah, so now when I when I imagine my life with Jennifer Connelly, we're both cheating on our spouses. <laughs> it just makes it seem weird. <laughs> it could be a guilty pleasure. <laughs> um, but that's not a good enough reason to not like Paul Bettany. That's but true. Honestly, with the exception of uh, Beautiful Mind, which obviously got a lot of attention for, and mm-hmm. Master and Commander, mm-hmm. I've rarely seen him used to his full potential. Really? And I do think that I include Priest and Legion in that. I don't mm. necessarily think that they're bad movies or whatever, but I think Paul Bettany is a better actor <laughs> than this. You know, he kind of deserves more than to be the centerpiece of a bunch of special effects. Yeah. I think the guy's got game. You know? Yeah, I think uh, he does He's got too. amazing abs as well, but yes. he can act and let him. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Please <laughs> um, let him act, please. But this director, I said, uh, sorry, Scott Stewart, mainly a special effects guy. That's mm-hmm. most of his background is, is mm-hmm. visual effects, which is why his movies are basically visual effects. Mm-hmm. Priest, the entire movie is like a visual effect. The environments are created, you yeah. know. Uh, there's a lot of augmented characters. The the vampires not only look badass, but I, I really like the look of their like familiars. They're sort of like washed mm-hmm. out sort of shells of people. They almost look zombie. <laughs> yeah, they're very creepy. 
And then you have these big sort of dark metropolises that are all built around the Catholic Church because mm-hmm. with the very reality of vampires being a real thing in the world that almost eradicated humanity, people quite understandably started signing up for church yeah. <laughs> because it was a powerful weapon. But powerful institutions become corrupt. Yes. And that is a not-so-subtle theme that we see explored in Priest. It's not so much that, you know, power corrupts absolutely. It's just that the corruptible rise to the power because that's what they're attracted to. Normal sane people are not necessarily attracted to power. Insane people want it and will bathe in it. But I'm actually hilariously uh, reading up on the movie online. There's people who was like, this is a big anti-church movie and wah, wah, wah. <laughs> honestly, I, I, I honestly don't know what the fuck they're talking about. Like, uh, to me, this is kind of a dumb, pretty action movie. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, if you think too deeply about it, that's on you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If you, if you were looking for problems where you there were none, then that's not anybody's business but your own. And please keep your angry blogs to yourself. Thank you very much. Um, I, I enjoy this movie. Again, visually spectacular. It tells a story not so much with words, but with sweeping. Like, there's a, an amazing sort of cartoon sequence at the beginning. Uh, very stylized kind of comic book where you're seeing the vampires through the ages. Now, frankly... <clears throat> Given the scope of it, where they start what looks like in sort of the Dark Ages up to what is a post-apocalyptic dystopian future, I'm not really sure how humanity survived. (laughs) Like, I have no clue. Like, it didn't matter that they had gotten armor and swords, that they had eventually evolved to flamethrowers and tanks. Those vampires were killing machines. Like, they flew it like Mach 1, and all that was left of the person was limbs and blood everywhere. I understood the appeal of being a familiar, really. The cities, nobody seemed happy. Like, this is very much the Mad Max world. Even if you're doing well, you're miserable. (laughs) Yeah, you're you're working in a mine, as far as I could tell, and that that was the highlight of getting a good job, was that... Our central character, who is just the priest, I don't believe we do know his... Do we get his name? I don't know. Um, The man with no name uh, has to defy the rigorous rules of this uh, Catholic institution. brainwashing. Because uh, his one surviving family member, his his niece, has been taken by some vampires. Mm -hmm. So he has to go off the grid, break the rules to try and get her back. And he's being pursued not just by uh, the vampires, but these other super powerful ninja priests who now see him he's been excommunicated to the point that he may need to be put down exactly and it's extraordinary because the priests are like i'm not really sure what the source of their power is they have like they they're just like godlike ninjas um not that they can't be killed but they're just really tough and they have such an, a delightful array of weaponry where do they get those wonderful, wonderful toys <laughs> <laughs> like at one point paul bettany's character he pulls out a book and he's reciting the passage of uh, yea the valley though i walk through the valley of shadows and all of a sudden these things pop up and these stars are floating through the air and he's casually catching them and whipping these silver weaponry through the vampires as they're flying at inhuman speed because anybody else they'd be like road paced but yeah. the priests were able to be the equalizers in this um, and this is sort of the middle ground I was talking about Blade sort of being unfazable and not scared there's a little bit of that with, with the priest character in that he he stays focused throughout it but it's not out of badassery it's more out of survival he has to you know 
concentrate to pull off all of these amazing feats. It's not easy and shrugged off like it no. is with Blade. You know? <clears throat> this is a skill that he's he's acquired not because he has superpowers, but because he's focused his mind and his body to, to be this powerful weapon. Right? And the stakes are actually, there's actual stakes. Unlike Blade, who really, you don't know what he's doing there or doesn't care. He cares. He has a family. And then as you find out later on, of course, spoilers, uh, the person in question is, is actually... Um, is it alright if I just go ahead. go ahead and say it? It's his daughter. Right. And he is, he cares. Like, he is fighting the fight of his life to save her life. So, there is definitely humanity and compassion. There's also what he's given up to. Um, the other priests who come for him, all but one, make it. Yeah. Because they end up meeting the antagonist of the movie, which is his ex-compatriot. Yeah. Um, years earlier, his ex-compatriot had been stolen by the vampires in... What was the name of the hive? It was They were called hives where the vampires right. lived. And they excreted this disgusting substance to build them. It was very... The vampires are interesting because they're monsters. They're like sightless, eyeless, scuttling, taloned monsters. And I mean, they the only thing that they, they went sort of traditionally is they lived in sort of stony tomb crypts. But beyond that, they lived in these cavernous wormhole tubes that warrens that were under the surface of the earth and Carl Urban is the name of the actor who sort of plays the the big bad right he recently played uh, Dread Judge Dread in the new sort of Dread reinterpretation Mm -hmm. and he's also Bones in the nouveau Star Trek he seems to be coming up yeah um I uh I guess I had almost forgotten he was in the movie when I saw it again, so I guess that's not high praise. Um, but I do like that actor, typically. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but there's a lot of faces in this movie, like, what are you doing? How in the world did they get Christopher Plummer <laughs> to be in this movie? Uh, yeah. Like, I, well, I say that, and Christopher Plummer, you know, he's played Klingons, you know. But yeah. he's also in The Sound of Music, for God's sake. And uh, what was the name of the other guy who... Uh, Oh my god, he was Wormtongue in the Lord of the Rings. Yes, he was uh, Wormtongue, and this was right kind of after the... Brad Dorff. Brad Dorff. It was in there somewhere. He was the snake oil peddling merchant who... Played both sides to a limited degree. Yeah, Yeah. and and he had a great little scene with the main antagonist character, uh, at which point he gets transformed by him. What's interesting about this one is that in this film, the vampires were monsters, absolute 100% monsters, for whatever reason, this one vampire queen decided to make a human vampire that's never apparently in this world existed before, right. in, this, in this set of realities. So that well, was it's like the worst fate that could befall a priest, right? Yeah, exactly, is being transformed into the thing that you've been born Sworn and to raised to combat. Yeah. And, uh, and he's, he obviously took to it, and um, did sunlight bother him? I don't think sunlight... The sunlight bothered the vampires, but it didn't seem to bother him, which made him all the more dangerous. So he could go on the surface, unlike the vampires themselves, and function perfectly fine in light. Yeah. And you're right. When you say they're monsters, they are. They're they're snarling monsters. They don't even talk. They're born out of suit. They're born out of pods, for God's sake. They're disgusting. So, you know, a fairly interesting take on it, but full of archetypes, right? Yes. There's the big institution that is protecting the world, but at the same time abusing its power. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's the the one guy who has to break away from everything that he's known to and understand to 
save a family member mm -hmm. and, you know, change the landscape, as it were. Yeah. There's nothing in this movie that we haven't seen before. No. Just not with these particular color palettes, you know? No. But when I say it's like, you know, Mad Max meets Near Dark, mm -hmm. you know, that, that's pretty much it. <laughs> it's yeah. like... Maybe a few more gadgets. Throw in some, with a percentage of Batman in there. Uh, and then they have those crazy, like, speed bikes that kind of give me a Tron vibe. And, like, uh, but it's lean. It's quick. It's less than an hour and a half. It certainly doesn't overstay its welcome. No. But, I don't know. I see it more of, like, a Happy Meal film. Yeah. I, I watch it. I kind of enjoyed it while I watched it. But then I forgot it. Is it is it going to be memorable? It's like top forty pop. It's going to be done next week. So yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know how much more I have to say about Priest. That's sort of where I wash up on it. Um, it's not quite a guilty pleasure. I think it's okay. It's okay. Yeah. But I, I have a hard time foaming at the mouth over it. I, I, yeah. Yeah. I agree. Why would there be holes in the trailer? Backing up. All right, help us! Where do you think we are? We're in a slaughterhouse. Who's there? What are those things? So this After Dark Originals label, um, I don't know if they're still doing it or not, I hope so, mm -hmm. um, but they basically look at a lot of low-budget independent horror movies coming from the States and in and around, and they'll release six of them under this After Dark Originals to give them some distribution. Yeah. The company makes some coin, and the filmmakers get some exposure. Everybody wins. That's great. And there was a while, they did like six or so, six or eight of them a year, right? Mm -hmm. But because they're low-budget films made by people who... For a lot of the times, first time holding a camera, first time in front of the camera, they run pretty hot and cold. Yeah. <laughs> um, but the movies that we're talking about, almost all of them have fairly considerable budgets and special effects. Indeed. And at least one, you know, fairly significant star, you know. Uh, they have a lot of things to sell the product. In a lot of ways, Prowl sort of arrives as another vampire movie. Right? Yeah. <clears throat> um, so it's going to have to work to somehow distinguish itself because, like I said at the introduction of this episode, there's always going to be another vampire movie. Mm -hmm. So how, how is Prowl going to make itself memorable? And does it? And I guess that's the question I pose to you. <laughs> this one surprised me because here I was setting up, like, it's exactly the same thing. It was like, okay, here's another vampire movie. I'm watching the targets and the numbers paint on the characters as they appear right. as to who is going to die first based on things they say. Like the blonde girl who is the, the main blonde character... Um, I can't remember her name. I'm sorry. That's okay. Uh, but she had her best friend, who was another blonde girl. She Amber is the main protagonist. Amber is the main protagonist. Great. Amber's friend was like, you know, Amber's like, I don't need to go to the big city. And, uh, and her friend says to her, well, maybe I'll move with you. I'm like, yep, she's dead. Although <laughs> at that point it was like a 50, 50, cause it either, either means she's dead right away or she is going to actually make it with her to the end. And it was a little bit... To of... me, it was either she's dead right away or she dies at the climactic moment of the movie. <laughs> but, yeah, and it was funny because I almost called which character died first. Yeah. It was I've gotten to that point where it was good. Who's on first? <laughs> Who's on first? Um, 
I actually, again, this movie surprised me. For a low-budget movie, I thought it told a story really well. It was the less is more, saying less is more. The, there was a history with Amber that the, the, the characters kind of didn't talk about because it was sort of an uncomfortable issue. She worked at a meat factory, you know, um, you know, cutting meat, throwing out trash, and she kept having these, right at the beginning of the movie, really disturbing vision nightmares. Yeah. Like her running through dark fields and being covered in blood. Something monsters coming and dragging her out and she's waking up. Yeah. Um, there was just neat things like that. It's an interesting play there because at the time when you're watching it it's like, oh, she's got a premonition because we know we're watching a, a vampire. Oh, yes. And that shit's going to go down. But uh, it turns out that that wasn't so much a premonition. <clears throat> no. Um, this is one of those sort of cruel fate things. Mm -hmm. uh, yes, our main character, Amber doesn't feel right in her own skin and she just feels like she needs to change her life. Yeah. And uh, her little gaggle of super attractive friends decide I know. that they're going to pile into a car and drive her out to the big shitty and she can start her new life there with her friend. Yeah. Um, basically, there's three acts to the to the movie and mm -hmm. the first two... The first one's really short, road trip. Yeah. Second one's... Also short, but they're in the back of this rig. They get their car breaks down, and this guy with a semi trailer pulls up and says, "I can give you a ride to the city, but you catchers, you got to ride in the back." And uh, at first, when they get back there, it's all fine and good. It's sort of fun, but mm -hmm. then they realize, you know, this guy's not stopping. He's not letting them out. They start getting more and more creeped out. It gets more and more at it. But once they arrive at this meat packaging plant, and are you know get out of the vehicle, abandoned meat packaging plant. This is where the 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 filmmakers really were smart in that, like, we already sort of feel like we've had an epic movie. It's been maybe half an hour, if that, to get mm -hmm. us to this place. But the rest of the movie takes place in this one location. Speaking as a low-budget filmmaker, that is awesome for production. Exactly. Right? Um, and the story has been well enough that by the time that those doors open and the feeding begins, we know who everybody is. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe minimally, but, like, everybody has established where they fit into the group. Yeah. Um... We're not too attached to them because we know where this is going to go. Oh, yeah. And I guess that's the strengths I talk about is the format and how they, you know, make use of a low budget for, to make it fairly impressive mm -hmm. and not feel so much like a low budget movie. No, I mean, it didn't at all. But the other side of the coin is we've seen these characters before mm -hmm. and we don't. At least I didn't particularly care when they were being killed off. <laughs> I know. I That was my in my mind. I was sitting there looking at them going like, I, I really don't like, I, I wanted to care, but again I've seen, again, we've seen this before. We know these characters. They're going to die. Like I said I was watching Numbers and I almost called it. Yeah. The cute blonde boy, dead right away. Just like, <laughs> and the guys got treated way worse than the girls. They Which were... is typical, actually, of horror movies. Mm -hmm. Horror movies have this reputation. A lot of people won't even watch them. Like, I remember and famously in the 80s, Siskel and Ebert dedicated an entire show basically to saying that horror movies are terrible because they're attacks on women, they, they're exploitive, they, mm -hmm. they brutalize women, and they just turn them into victims. Now, I'm not going to say that women, you know, aren't sexually exploited when they show their, their boobs and they mm -hmm. do have grisly deaths in horror movies. Mm -hmm. But if you look at horror movies, and like across the board, yeah, there's some violent deaths for women, but typically... The guys always get it worse. Holy crap. And did they? Yeah. And well, typically, like I would say to a 70%, your survivor person or your, your main protagonist of a horror movie is a woman who is smart and who overcomes the evil. Yes. I would argue that the horror genre is actually 
much more pro-feminism than it is given credit for. Indeed. Yes, women die horribly, and yes, we see a lot of boobies. <laughs> uh, and I, I guess, you know, I will take that hit. But I get tired of people saying that, that you know, they're misogynist and that horror movies hate women. They no, don't. no, actually, I felt that the Amber character was a very strong character. Like, even though she was in an untenable situation, like, she just, within the, it felt like within the span of, like, frickin' two or three minutes, all her friends die. <laughs> like, her friend of the friend, gone. I, I, I kind of had picked him to survive, and I thought, you know, that he was going to be coming back later. They did eventually find him later on, tied yeah. up. And then he's brutally, like, lofted through the air and does this beautiful pancake splat on the ground. Yeah. By the way, again, to talk briefly about the set, it was like a vampire por- parkour wet dream. Yeah. Like, it was just, like, monkey bars everywhere. It was this old... What would you call it? This, it, was a, it was a plant. It was old... Uh, Some sort of warehouse. Warehouse plant. But there was all these, like... Places where you could climb and run, and they were everywhere. You could see the thing about that I liked about the movie is that as Amber's moving, you could see movement. Yeah. They weren't they weren't trying to be coy about it. There was just like little dark movements of the wild vampires. It was a feeding ground, mm-hmm. and if you wanted to, you could just go to the back of the truck and drink the blood. They found out that the truck was filled with with packets of blood. Yeah, but if you preferred to hunt your prey, if you, you preferred it on the hoof, yeah, it was right there. Yeah. Um, the sort of twist of the movie, the, the one thing that it's trying to add to distinguish itself is uh-huh. that the vampires here are a little bit different. You're yeah. not, you don't necessarily have to be bitten by a vampire no, or be born a vampire. In fact, we find out that our protagonist, the reason that she was mm-hmm. having these visions, the reasons that she felt uncomfortable in her, sin, in her skin and, and always wanted to escape it is because... She is one of these yeah. things. Yeah, they were, they were hereditary biological rather than parasitic. But beyond that, they do look and act like vampires, closer to like the 28 Days Later vibe vampires. Mm-hmm. But it's interesting because I remember before I put that together, there's a scene earlier where she kicks out the side panel of the truck so that they can escape. And I was like, well, that's very convenient. Uh, I don't think anybody could kick uh, the side panel out of a of semi-trailer truck, especially with casually as she seemed to be doing it. Yeah. But the screenplay got around to justifying that retroactively. Yeah, she, she was does have superhuman. She does strength. have and she was they talked about her running. She was able to make this run in a ridiculously short time from yeah. one place to another. And they sort of teased that she was like, "How did you do that? Nobody runs that fast." Yeah. Or how did you and she bested one of the noob vampires. Like how how did she have the ability to do that? She shouldn't have. She also seems more human than most of the vampires, too. I, it wasn't really clear to me how some of them seemed, you know, to have a head on their shoulders and the other ones seemed to be, like, wild. Yeah. And I didn't really understand how that exactly worked. But, you know, within the frames of this, like, 89-minute mm-hmm. bloody vampire film, like, I mean, just, you know, if you take the time to explain every little corner, the whole movie gets weighted down by exposition. So I understand the choice, you know. There was one particular moment I want to share um, where the character, I, I don't know her name, but I call her Marmi Noir, Mother Night, right. uh, showed up. Uh, the lead. The lead vampire, the, 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 the mother of this vampire orphanage. Another as strong female character. Yeah. <laughs> and very, very sort of like motherly, caring, powerful. And Amber has leapt up. And at this point, it's, it's obviously clear. She's done like a spider leap up on the wall and is holding her herself up through her hands yeah. and just looking down like and that's obviously it's like ah 
she's not human. Yeah. And um, they start treating her differently. They, they start treating her. They're like, oh, you're one of us. And, and the line that Amber said was, you killed my friends. And then Marmi Noir said, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'd pause the film and laugh for about three <laughs> minutes straight. Because how she said that was like... All the fucks I don't give yeah. are present in what I said. I just, I just made my little black heart just because it was it's, just so well delivered. It's like the apology I give my children when they have the pouty face because it's bedtime. I'm, I'm sorry, sorry, but it's bedtime. You know? I'm sorry. And I'm not sorry because once you guys go to bed, I can watch something really grisly. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's daddy time! Indeed. So, but yeah, I I didn't realize it was low budget. It didn't feel like it was low budget. I mean, they did a lot of shaky cam kind of stuff. And that I was would say a, that as a compliment, though. Yeah, it, but it didn't, it did not have that feel. Oh, and I do want to talk about the end. Yeah. Um, because they, they managed to get away. The, the place explodes. What I loved is none of the bad guys were dead. Uh, 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 one of the gas canisters had been knocked over. And in a scuffle, Amber had been using a Zippo lighter to illuminate her way. Yeah. And had dropped it. And so eventually, after this long speech with the Mother Knight, this gas canister finally, the gasoline makes its way and explodes. The vampires are fine. Yeah. They're like, oh, she'll be back. Yeah. And she goes and is getting her friend, and you see a beautiful long sequence. It's in daytime, and they're they're getting out of where they're going, and this old guy out of nowhere with a giant scraggly Santa Claus beard attacks her friend, her friend who was the first bitten and still managed to survive despite being abducted and captured and being almost force-fed to Amber. Uh, Amber saves her, but vamps out on her and just eats him. Yeah. And then she sits down with her at the end. Her friend has just witnessed Amber brutally mangle and eviscerate and drink him dry. And and Amber's like, you know, and her face, like you saw she had fangs, like piranha fangs yeah. practically. And Amber's like, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. And that's how, and then ends. Credits. And I'm like, is it going to be okay? Yeah. I don't know. Like you just wonder, is she going to the big city? Is her friend dead? Is she going to have a strange little, like it, it just left it open and I thought it ended really well. Evil is not conquered or vanquished. No. You know, um, but I think the sort of half win, I guess it's somewhat ambiguous is that in spite that she realizes who she is, mm-hmm. she's still who she is. Yeah. Right. Um, you know, maybe she'll be one of the vampires who figures out a way to subsist on, you know, rare ground beef or whatever. I mean, she doesn't want to kill people. She doesn't, that's not in her. She's mm-hmm. not like the other ones. No. Maybe she will become that. But right now she's still who, who she was. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, they, they don't tie it up in a nice little bow at the end. No. And, and that's I, okay. I liked that. I loved that, that nice open end because there was possibilities for everything and that and that just made my mind go and that's why it surprised me i was like this film is well done (laughs) over a thousand years ago the soldiers of light and the warriors of darkness fought for possession of the chalk of fate fate which controls our destiny When neither side could attain it, a truce was struck. For centuries, that truce has been guarded by the Night Watch. Okay, Timur Bekmembetov. 
German uh, director who has unbelievable gifts as far as visual aesthetic. Mm -hmm. Um, What we're looking at here, Daywatch, is a sequel to uh, Nightwatch, which Mm -hmm. was a film that sort of got him noticed by Hollywood. You know, they was they poured a lot of money into it. It's based off of a series of novels, and um, it looks it looked awesome. It had a really strong story. Broad strokes here because the the plot in this is really convoluted. Yes. I feel like in attempting to explain it, I'm going to make people not want to watch the movie. But you really should watch the movie. You really should. Um, bare bones plot is that there are forces of light and forces of dark, and they've been at war for many, 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 many millions of years or whatever. But several thousand years ago, a truce had been made. And that truth was that the, the, the dark say to the dark, the light say to the light, and they you're not allowed to hurt each other, and you're not allowed to hurt people. We're just going to sort of subsist and, and keep the peace. And uh, certain members, both of the dark and the light, act as sort of a police force to make sure that these rules are respected. Mm-hmm. That's the basic plot, and that sort of hangs over all of the stories. By the time we get to Daywatch, which is the second film... Um, our main character, what's his name now? <laughs> uh, in the previous film, his he'd had a son, and there was a he's a very powerful figure, mm-hmm. and they knew that if he came to the light of the dark, it would it would affect the balance. It would swing things. And unfortunately, Lucian ended up going to the dark, and that's sort of where we were at the end of the first movie. Due to a choice made by the father. So yeah. His father is the main character. I I would try to attempt to say his name here, but uh, <laughs> just say his character name. Yeah, um, Anton is the name of the character. Right, Konstantin Kabrinsky. He kind of looks like the lead guy from uh, How I Met Your Mother mm-hmm. uh, and uh, that Muppet, the Nouveau Muppet movie. What's his face? Okay. Uh, he weirdly kind of resembles him in certain scenes. Anyway, no. um, he's training a new night watch person or day watch person to, yeah. to help keep the balance and he's fallen in love with her and uh wouldn't she's gorgeous she's pretty foxy oh yeah um and they find one of the dark ones are feeding off this old lady and they give a chase and at the last second he realizes that who they're chasing is his son and he ends up protecting his son because his fatherly instinct he just doesn't want to see his son killed in front of him that's right but that choice causes a domino effect of very complicated strange <laughs> things and again the deeper i try to explain it the more of the review i'm going to keep up but mm-hmm. i will take us that far yeah we'll, 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 we'll talk to more things otherwise because we have body switching in here yes we've got vampires we've got uh, it's all over the place there's a lot of balls in the air the vampires sort of take more of a peripheral seat in this story than they did in the first one yes so this is probably the loosest as far as defining it as a vampire movie I think all of the light and the dark have some degree of sort of energy sucking that they do, part of their different mm-hmm. powers. Mm-hmm. But part of the fun of the franchise is that all the characters, like the X-Men, have different abilities. And it's in, and it's just incredible how they, they portray them. I, I really enjoy... Uh, again, it's a movie that is a subtitle movie, so yes. I really recommend... Please don't listen to the English dub because you will actually miss the flavor. Yeah. Watch the English subtitles because it's so much better. Um yeah, the Anton character is just interesting because he plays a pivotal role in in riding through this whole madness. In the previous um, Night Watch, he'd sort of been trickling around the dark, 
And uh, it was a little more vampiric there with that one, too. Yeah. Uh, he's sort of gone cl- clean, although not completely. He, he's he's still... wounded because he's lost his son. He has lost his son. And he's in love with a girl that he's not allowed to be in love with because he's training her. Yeah, <laughs> and there's and there's them's the rules. Yeah, them's the rules. But that's, again, much like in the priest movie we were talking about, it sort of defines him. He's them's the rules that are going to be broken as soon as possible. <laughs> yeah. uh, and the girl he's in love with is, extro- is an extraordinary... Uh, figure in the previous film i'm gonna sorry spoil things she was uh the subject of um there was a terrible and extremely powerful curse that was inhabiting this building and they found out that it was her grief that was fueling the curse and that she herself was a very powerful figure of the light but her grief had fueled this enormous superstorm curse that almost warped her Yeah. yeah so she had finally broken free of that and so we see her now sort of learning the ropes and uh, there's an interesting sub-dimension to this world called the gloom. Yeah. And the gloom on the first level, there's these things called the mosquitoes. Now, describe the mosquitoes again, Larry. Do you remember what yeah, they were? Yeah, well, they, she refers to them as mosquitoes. I don't know what they are, but in a way, I see it as a visual cue to make sure that we understand we've entered the gloom. The other obvious thing is, like, they're in a chase in a busy marketplace, and when they duck into the gloom, all of the other people disappear. And it turns into a kind of garbagey wasteland. Yeah. It's almost like a dimensional rift that they can enter into to sort of keep themselves undercover. But that's one of the things that I've never been really clear of. And it's a problem in both the first and second movie. Mm-hmm. How secret the supernatural world is. Because mm-hmm. there's a lot of, especially in the second one, very big and loud public supernatural events. Oh yeah, place. it's absolutely noisy as all get out. fairly <clears throat> inexplicably, although it looks fantastic, drives a car at the side yep. of the building. <laughs> yep. Just to make a dramatic entrance, it seems. <laughs> Which was fantastic. And she's in the gloom at the time. because yeah. it's, it's uh, The reason that's clear is because a woman is washing this window oh, as right. the car is skating across the surface and doesn't notice a thing. Yeah. <laughs> But, uh, yeah, it's an amazing visual effect. It's also kind of crazy and insane, but that's Timur Bekmemenov. Like, like that's, that's where he lives, mm-hmm. and I want to see more from him. Yeah, I, it's the style in itself uh, has a place at the table and commands it. So This is old-school Sam Raimi with, I, I'm happy to say, more focus and composure. Mm-hmm. Uh, than than Raimi usually produces, like right. like uh, he's telling a fairly complicated story as we've continued to describe. Yeah. We haven't even mentioned the MacGuffin of the film, no. which is this thing called the Chalk of Fate, yeah. which I'm going to assume sounds cooler in German. <laughs> <laughs> but basically, uh, if you fucked up something in your life and you get your hand on this piece of chalk, you can write a message or a word and yeah. it will correct your mistake. Yeah, the world will reorient around it. And uh, this becomes very important twist in the later acts of the movie mm-hmm. um, because things slowly get crazier and crazier. But when they go bad, they go <laughs> really bad. bad. Yeah, <laughs> extremely bad. Uh, just to talk briefly, the opening is exquisite. Um, the, the history of the chalk, there was a, a warlord who yeah. had discovered how to get into this impenetrable fortress was just simply like 
it was just it was a map and he'd poked his finger through and that led him to the conclusion that the walls were illusions and he started yeah. bursting through them and it was just beautiful insane there were people who were crows turning into samurai warriors falling, falling out of the in. sky and uh, just uh, i just love that they just drop you into this amazing special effects universe like there's a quote on the cover of my my dvd box and i don't like to quote other critics as a rule but mm-hmm. it says this movie rivals anything on display in Lord of the Rings, and it's louder and faster and meaner than 300. Wow. I, like, I don't know if it's louder, faster, and meaner than 300, but as far as the visual aesthetic and the special mm-hmm. effects, just because this is a foreign film, you know, a lot of people assume that it's not going to have the production value. Oh, this has as much or more production value that you'll see in a $200 million Oh, hell yes. No. Hollywood feature. And way more story and way more in-depth. Um, to talk about the, the things going shit-bat-crazy, um, the son... Who's the son's name, son's name again? Lucen. Lucen. And the girl, the blonde, what's her character's name? But I don't have okay, that. well, I'll, t- I'll just talk about it. So the son character and, and the, the padawan, as it were, of Anton, these end up being people who are pivotal figure characters. They're like, kind of counterbalances. They're like the great light and the great dark, and they possess tremendous power. And and when they and they're not to meet because if they meet, it's like you know matter and antimatter. It's just going to cause a massive explosion, which yeah. it kind of does. It, well, so the world seems to at least temporarily be obliterated by the battle mm-hmm. because basically, uh, in the third act of this movie, the war, the ancient war, is reignited. Yeah, and the the, the light and the dark go to war, and everybody in peripheral to it and most of both sides end up being killed oh it was very quickly (laughs) and the poor humans who had no idea are suddenly dealing with a rampaging ferris wheel that is rolling over everything because the world just starts falling apart buildings start getting like towers start getting snapped in two he had used a again it was like the proximity if he had used the yo-yo a question I have if he would used the the, the sun Mm -hmm. had used the yo-yo against anyone else it might not have had the same effect. He had this, like, yo-yo weapon, yeah. which was, like, the doom yo-yo. I have no idea. Because it went out, snapped buildings in half, and then boomeranged back and started hitting other things. Um, the supernaturals were hurt but not killed. Not so much for everything yeah, else around them. Everybody else is under the rubble. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Um, so I've been very positive about this. I'm just going to... There's a few things that I uh, I gotta I gotta be fair and balanced. Absolutely. Okay. Um, one of the main dark characters when we first are reintroduced to him in, in this movie, he's doing this strange tango dance yeah. with his wife. Yeah. Or his however that weird relationship is. Concubine. And uh, it's sort of bookended later in the movie. He does a similar uh, tango dance with a, a, a character, this vampire character. Yes. And he uses the the formality of a dance to sort of covertly stake him yeah and i'd not seen that before but it was strange it was strange it was a strange beat in the movie i just like i mean there's lots of weird shit in the movie and that's just another one but that was one of the ones that kind of took me out of it for a second i was like that's that that's weird (laughs) you guys i didn't see that coming and this weird almost comic but kind of sexy subplot in order to hide anton who's being falsely accused of a murder again the script is very convoluted but when you watch the movie it makes sense mm-hmm. they decide to hide anton they know he's in, uh, innocent by switching his 
consciousness with the body of this other female character. Yeah. So he has all these interactions with this woman that he's in love with. Like she asks him to hand her a towel while she's in the shower. And she and, looks amazing. Yeah. And then they end up having this nice lesbian makeout section. Yes! Which everybody can get behind, I think. But it almost feels like the property of another movie. That whole little subplot. That, I like it. I mean, it, it, it's kind of cool, but... Again, I, I don't know how comfortably it fit with the rest of and what I, was going on. I think on. it's because it was based off of a book. It was like what they were, had to decide what, what we needed to keep from the book to make everything flow. And I don't know. I, I of course, have not read the series of novels that it's based on, but you mm-hmm. get the feeling like it's hella dense. You know? Yeah. Uh, I, like a, a lot of peripheral characters uh, who we don't get a lot of time with. There's that guy who stops that train car with his body. <laughs> And then has that huge tantrum afterwards. Now, wasn't he the main antagonist character? Like the like, or sorry, the main like force of dark. There was Gessier, who was the sort of the force, the main sort of general of light. Yeah. And then I can't remember his name, but he was the main. Yeah, he, the train hits him, and he stops it with his body. <laughs> he stops with his body, and he's looking kind. He's got broken glass sticking out of his face everywhere, and, he's and just, he just has a flip out. <laughs> he's just kind of pissed, yeah. you know. Like that's. I mean, maybe just to state that this is like this is the guy and this is the other guy you just don't yeah. fuck with and and if you are crazy enough to watch Daywatch without seeing Nightwatch then you'll have a real idea of the scale of the <laughs> magic and supernatural power that, that that is being wielded by the both sides you know mm-hmm. they are capable of destroying the world if the war is reignited which is why this truce is important imperative <laughs> so yeah, I'm, I'm uh, noticing a lot of positives and not too many negatives. It's, it's. I mean, there's, there's, a, there's a couple of things that sort of like don't necessarily track like a little bit. Like I'm being super picky. Like with the two vampire characters, um, the only really obvious vampire characters in this is the son and the father, yeah. who become um, much more significant later on because they, you find out that in a way the vampire characters are quote innocent pawns of this master plan. Right? Yeah, they, they, they had been manipulated to murder this woman in order to frame. Anton, which was in order to lure the his Padawan out to meet his son, which would ignite the war because there was some kind of hooky prophecy thing, and indeed they did. Yeah. So it was, but the I think in the book there, I, there you would have seen more about the father and the son relationship, which I kind of wanted to see more of. But and we maybe needed more of, although the movie as it stands is two and a half hours long, and for a horror movie to be that long is a pretty rare thing. But uh, other than he's the father, he hasn't spent time with his son, and he spent the entire first movie trying to save his son, only to be rejected by him. And Lucen continues to be a little shit through this whole movie. Yeah. I didn't fully understand his loyalty to his son, because mm-hmm. first of all, his son is going to potentially a catalyst for the end of the world. Yeah. And secondly, he's a dick. Yeah. He's a bad boy. They have exactly one scene where they're civil to each other in the movie, and it turns sour very quickly. Yeah, yeah. You kind of wonder. So that that maybe maybe that was more clear in the book, maybe? I'm not sure. Something had to hit the cutting room floor. Like, clearly. I suppose. Uh, The sad news is, is that apparently they were going to do three of these movies. The Dusk Watch. Or whatever it would be. But uh, Timur has been found by Hollywood, and he did this movie Wanted, and uh, this movie uh, Abraham Lincoln, Vampire Killer. And those are both visually amazing movies that are loud and empty. Uh, The difference between his Hollywood movies and the movies he made at home, or that I think the movies he made at home are every bit as visually 
wonderful. Yes. But are telling an awesome story. And I, I remember when I heard, because there was teases at the end of Daywatch that there was going to be a third More. called Duskwatch. And I was like, I was so looking forward to seeing that movie where it sort of wrapped everything up and I was, and, and they didn't do it. And I'm like, well, <gasps> it may end up happening. I mean, if, if he lays a few eggs <laughs> in the box office, he may have to crawl back home and, and finish this trilogy because it does feel like it wants to be a trilogy. But oh God. Even if it's not, I, I have to say, watch Daywatch. Yes. And make sure you watch Nightwatch first. Yeah. The war itself had become more perilous. The weapons had evolved. But our orders remained the same. Hunt them down and kill them off, one by one. They are the immortal damned. One family lusting for power and wealth. The chain has never been broken, not in 14 centuries. Another driven by revenge. Soon we'll defeat the vampires on their own ground. See this human? He's attractive. I can't be positive, but I'm beginning to think the Lycans are following him. I love Michael. Why are they after you? Okay, we're going to talk about Underworld, awesome. directed by Len Wiseman. Um, this predates the Twilight movie franchise, and I mm-hmm. assume the books, although I, I'm not even going to pretend that I read the books. But um, I read the books. But it, it's similar in that there's sort of a friction between vampires and werewolves yes and sort of similar to uh Daywatch, there's sort of an uncomfortable peace going on between mm-hmm, them mm-hmm. <laughs> but uh werewolves in this storyline used to sort of be a slave race to these vampires yes they and they've risen up and become free and they there's, there's still a little animosity about the way things Something used to be. Something about being enslaved for hundreds of years, it kind of pisses you off. But I kind of like that idea that the, the vampires, while they slept, would, would commission werewolves to guard them. You know, mm-hmm. while they were vulnerable and sleeping during the day, the lichens would, would look after them. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, enter leather-clad, super sexy Kate, uh, Beckinsale. Kate Beckinsale. And at the time she made this movie, like now you'll think of Kate Beckinsale and she's in lots of these sort of action-y, you know, spectacle movies. She ended up marrying the director of this movie, Len Wiseman, and he does, he did the remake of Total Recall and had mm-hmm. her in it. And like, he makes good looking visual spectacle movies. They kind of rise and fall on the strength of their scripts yeah. for the most part. And that would be true of Underworld as well. There are scenes where the script is cooking and it goes really well. And there are other scenes which are very familiar and kind of stop gaps to get us between one action sequence to another. Yeah. Um, but it's interesting because Kate Beckinsale up until this point was sort of an indie darling, right? Yeah. And she'll still do those types of movies as well. But uh, at the time, I think I knew her from Bernard's Much Ado About Nothing, mm-hmm. you know, and, uh, you know sort of very polished, posh British independent films. Yeah. And uh, I remember being quite charmed by her in this made-for-TV movie called uh, The Haunted. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, I remember watching her in that movie in the early 90s and thinking, mmm. <laughs> <laughs> I was in high school, by the way. Although yeah. I probably would have reacted similarly to <laughs> Oh, come on. <laughs> guys are guys. Anyway, so we're introduced to this world through the eyes of this ancient death dealer. Yeah, and um, it becomes complicated in a Romeo and Juliet sort of way, where at first she kind of falls for uh, a werewolf, 
and then we sort of punch it up a notch where a new sort of species is introduced yeah. where the Sp- Scott Speedman character sort of becomes the hybrid both the hybrid werewolf vampire hottie dude hottie dude <laughs> yeah I'd say that's probably a good way of putting it yeah, I, I, yeah. I'm just picking it out of the ether <laughs> um, this movie is populated by very beautiful people and very skilled British character actors who uh, make up for maybe their lack of beauty with amazing acting skills. Exquisite acting. Uh, I'm talking Michael Sheen, Bill Nye, and, uh, well, Kate Beckinsale's British herself. Um, so it's an interesting mismatch because it seems like a very sort of American, loud, kind of dumb action movie sort of populated by these fairly serious actors. Yeah, yeah. And actually it really shows with the the acting. Well, the script itself it would seem like it's definitely like loud and, and noisy that way. There's some beautiful moments. Um this is one of the films, one of the first films where I would say um I, I would say just like, I mean, I could be absolutely wrong. Uh, it's the first of the series because Underworld went on to spawn like I think four, like a total of four movies in yeah. total. Uh, it was that popular. Um, already rumors of a reboot. Oh my goodness. Where you see a really strong female protagonist who doesn't get naked completely. I mean, granted in the second act she's wearing skin-tight leather and sailing through the air and looking fantastic. It's like the Catwoman cat suit, you know? We She's not naked, but we could still ogle her. And it at the same time, out. at the same time as she's not, you know, like, she wasn't necessarily sexualized. She was like a very strong female character uh, very much in charge, had her own sort of like, you know, I'm going to, you know, there are the rules, you can't break the rules. I'm like, but there's things that are wrong, I need to fix them. They're like, you can't, you're stepping out of your line. Of course, I'm speaking about the Craven character. Uh, that guy, we were talking a little bit about mm-hmm. how much he sucked. I'm going to quote my friend Darcy The Folk. actor's name is Shane Brawley. He plays Craven, the head of one of the houses of vampires. Shane Brawley. If this ever comes back and flames me, I will regret nothing. <laughs> um, to quote my friend Darcy, he sucks wet farts from dead pigeons. Nice. Uh, it was. Uh, I've heard uh, he sucks... Old farts out of oh he sucks farts out of old mattresses oh wow <laughs> yes that's yes. like some serious munch in there yeah, that's getting deep um it's kind of unfriendly to say this I guess he looks the part he's kind of got like the long he's hair he's and, like a giant walking male vagina douche and I, the I big mean, dark eyes and you immediately for some reason get this dick vibe from him yeah but it's not the, the script doesn't help him but he just doesn't seem comfortable I've got this weird feeling like he feels anxiety because the camera's there or something but. He's not strong, and he's a major figure in the movie. Yeah. And it kind of sucks. And I think that everybody involved in the project knows that he sucks, because spoilers for Underworld 2, one of the first bits of business of Underworld 2 is killing the shit out of that character. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> um, but, yeah, it's unfortunate, because the real villain, we don't really get exposed to be the villain until late in the game, mm-hmm. but... The counterbalance to Kate Beckinsale, this other guy, is just not a worthy match. Not in acting, not in performance, not in character, not in execution. No, you know? not at all. I'm it's... not scared of him. In fact, he kind of irritates me. Yeah, it's kind of like, can he be killed, finally? Please. <laughs> and, uh, and, it's, and interestingly, I believe uh, Vincent, was that the name of the actor who was the sort of patriarch? Oh, Victor. Victor, sorry, I was getting Bill that. Nye plays Victor. Bill Nye. What stellar performance. Like, he does this thing where... It's it's just a small thing, but the way it's executed, like uh, 
Kate Beckinsale's character is, had had awakened Victor and went out of order. There was like a, a sleeping thing. There was three ancient vampire patriarchal heads, yeah. and they spent. If they're like, all awake at the same time. They'll fight over power. So it seems to have been worked out that. Like, somebody rules for a century, then he goes to sleep, and somebody else rules for a century, and then he goes to sleep type of deal. And so, she's Kate Beckinsale's having to do deal with the walking male vagina, who's, like, making, like, douching everywhere. Breaking all the rules and being just difficult. Just difficult, and she can't stand him, and he's being, like, weak, so she wakens Victor. And, um, finally, they're having their talk, and the actor, he does this thing where he goes... He just yeah. does this mouth thing, where he just silences her. It's like a mouth smack thing. Yeah. And it was, like... It was just, I don't know why, but for whatever reason, just from an acting standpoint, I was just like, that is just an amazing thing he just did. I, I don't know why. I'm just, my inner actor is geeking out. Inner outer actor. I also want to mention Michael Sheen, who plays the head of the Lycans and a very hunted figure in this movie. It's really great. He is awesome. He's great. He is everything that Shane Brawley is not. Is not. I feel like I'm being so mean to that dude, but honestly, the first time I watched this movie, he almost sank it for me. Like, I love liked it considerably more the second time because I went in prepared for it, <laughs> you know? Yeah. But I think it, it it's also kind of sus. I, I, I get the vibe like he's not a very experienced actor and he's working against classically trained British actors who have been working for decades, right? Is like he's out Perhaps he was being intimidated and let that get the best of him but rather than, you know, rise to meet the occasion. And, and I st- It still also reeks of the casting director casting the right look instead of the right actor. Brutal. No, again, about, sorry, what was the name of that actor who played the head of the Lycans? Bill Nye. Bill Nye. He was spectacular. Yeah. Um, there's another uh, brief appearance by another actor who rose to prominence uh, later on, uh, Wentworth Miller, Correct. who ended up selling. I don't know. Did he sell Sc- Scott Speedman's character down the the drain to the Lycans? Or that's how I interpret it. Yeah. Uh, Wentworth Miller would go on later to do um, uh, jail. Prison Break, Prison Break, which was a TV show that ran for a couple of years, and then he went underground for a bit, and then came out, and then said, "I'm not going to do film anymore." Then changed his mind, and now he's playing Captain Cold on The Flash, which I'm, I'm enjoying. He also immensely. plays Chris Redfield in the Resident Evil series. Oh, uh, so you'll be able to see him later this year in Resident Evil: The Final Chapter. Fent. Knock on wood. Knock on wood. <laughs> wow. Wait, is um. Uh, sorry to d- divert from that. Is what's her face, Milia Jovovich, involved in that at all? Yeah, good. It's the, as far as I know, it's the last Resident Evil until they reboot it in a couple of years. Okay. I'm sure. I adore her. But anyway, <laughs> back to Underworld. Um, I enjoyed this. I enjoyed that there was an, a spanning history. I enjoyed Kate Beckinsale's character being a like again. This was 2002. I'm seeing a strong female character who's kicking ass, who's taking names, who's got you know emotion, who's got depth, vulnerability. Um, is not completely indestructible because she gets hurt. Like, the lichens are... These lichens are badasses. Like, you see the big... There's a big black guy who talks like... I think he sounds like that in real life. He sounds like a diesel engine got shoved into his voice box. (laughs) Really (laughs) strong voice. And he gets loaded full of silver, like, flying disc weapons of death that would talk, take your head off. And he's just like, what if? Walks it off. <laughs> Walk it off. And the Lycan alphas are not little. They're terrifying. Like, they're rampaging on the walls. Oh, yes. They're punching through floors. Kate Beckinsale makes an, a dramatic escape. Um, 
shooting the floor around her and blasting her way down to get away because she was cornered. Oh, no, the lichens are NTBFW. Not to be fucked with. Not to be fucked with. (laughs) Like, they could take easily ten of the vampires on and just, like... At one point, again, I'm just... I'm bouncing around. There was this adorable scene at the end, I call it adorable, where this vampire's got silver whips and he's like, I'm really fancy and I'm gonna whip this giant alpha werewolf... And I'm like, you're just pissing him off. And then all you see is the alpha, the mouth go in the camera POV. And like, that guy lost his face. He had a cool weapon, but a not effective. Not effective. <laughs> Poor choice of weaponry. Yeah. Uh, and that sort of illustrated leading up to how completely badass um, Victor yeah. was. Uh, Victor, the vampire patriarch, uh, one arms this alpha and punches him into the wall. Like he's yeah. just not fucking around. Yeah. Um, I also, there's two little counterbalancing things in there, and again, it's problematic, but the movie is so, you know, loud and flashy and entertaining mm-hmm. that I put past it. But this whole Romeo and Juliet romance, yeah. first it's wrong because he's a human being, yeah. and then it's wrong because he's a werewolf, and then it's wrong because he's this, but she loves him and it all works out, and this, this you know, basically tears her life asunder. Yeah. I've seen that. A lot. Yeah, yeah. But what I really appreciated is the big final showdown between Kate Beckinsale and Bill Nye. Yeah. It's one strike. Single strike. Will, Bill Nye is killed and he says a few words because he doesn't even realize he's been killed. And uh, I, I just love like the, how that was handled. Like, you're expecting this huge fight they've built up that he is like... Uh, he's already mowed down things that are twice three times his size but it makes sense what is her profession what does she introduce herself as the death dealer I am a death dealer and she knows better than anybody who Victor is and what he's capable of so you know we're not going to thrust and parry I don't even care if it's a fair fight I am going to go for the fucking throat right now oh yeah yeah and uh, I, I didn't expect that and it was one of the few things in the movie as much as I did overall quite enjoy it that I didn't expect. I was waiting to see one more big fight, and it was done. It was done. It was very similar, just to compare it briefly, to the end of Kill Bill, when, when the bride finally meets Bill. Mm-hmm. The fight is over in 20 seconds. This one was over in less than five. Yeah. <laughs> it was done. But it didn't feel unsatisfactory. No, not at all. I remember complaining in uh, 30 Days of Night, which is another vampire movie, which I really like, mm-hmm. but the final showdown between the you know main character and the main villain felt almost anticlimactic for yeah. much the same reason. It was like one punch and done. But in, in this Underworld one, I, I really thought it was effective and smart. It was There was like, just to talk about the details, I mean, I'm going to spoil it. She does this amazing Wonder Woman flying leap sword stroke, lands gracefully. At this point, she's entirely clad in skin-type pleather, yeah. looking fantastic, not naked, but still very, like, feminine and in control. Lands perfectly. Victor looks at her, says the few words, and then realizes he's dead. Yes. And then slides in two because... His head basically has been sliced in half. Yeah. And it just took him a second to notice. <laughs> and, and the walking, flatulating vagina had been had been making a, a point. Um, sorry, what, Craven. Craven. <laughs> I, I get them confused all the time. Craven, walking vagina. It's walking, practically the same thing. Yeah, yeah. Not my... Sorry, my apologies to all the lovely vaginas out there. Yeah. You're beautiful creatures. Do respect. Do respect. He was just, he was just an unkept, yeast-infected one. I'm really sorry. <laughs> he was terrible. Anyway, he'd made a point 
point of saying you're a death dealer. You're just a thing of the past. Blah blah blah. You're like <laughs> you're gonna be put out to pasture. Nope. Yeah. <laughs> Not a chance. Um. So yeah, it, the fight was over spectacularly fast. It was very satisfying. Um. Uh, I like the history. I mean, the vampire society was interesting. Seeing Kate Beckinsale walking through. Um, I'm going to do a comparison to the Vampires of Blade 2 versus this one. Right. Uh, in, in this one, in Blade 2, when you went into the Vampire Society of the Underground, it was gritty. They were making out with like razor blade tongues. People were getting operated on. Their spinals were getting like exposed. It was yeah. gross. These vampires were like, we're extremely decadent and posh. And here's Kate Beckinsale like walking through, strutting. And kind <laughs> of you got the feeling of, who the fuck are these people that I'm protecting? She would, she did, there was several scenes where she was standing on a building, like as demonstrated in the cover. She'd leap several stories off the building, land land perfectly with her super high boots and badass duster coat and just be like, I'm fucking cool. Yeah. And the movie is a little bit preoccupied with looking cool. And I yeah. complained a little bit about that in Blade. But uh, this is a different animal. Yes, I it recommend is. Underworld, but I recommend you go into it knowing what it is. This is a B-movie with oh, yeah. A production values. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, I don't... I, I mean, as much as I, I will give it a recommend, I don't know that it definitely does necessarily deserved a franchise Mm -hmm. and I do think that the franchise does sort of become to varying degrees diminishing returns Mm -hmm. but um, it's very hard for franchises if you like vampire movies or you want to see some badass badass werewolves you know as long as you know you don't overthink it I think this is a totally passable fine popcorn movie Um, but I I, I fall short of getting really passionate about it Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. this whole list of movies actually I, I mean for the most part I liked them but it's definitely a weaker list than the last one. It's true. It's true. This was more action-oriented, more sort of classic kind of American cinema rather than the European cinema. Although, I mean, there is definite showing from the European side of things, but it's more like American Hollywood, I guess I'm looking for the word. Does that make sense? I think so. Yeah. Okay. yeah. Damien, we Thank are you, Larry. ready to rank these vampire movies. Uh, the, the, so this will be 12 vampire movies you've reviewed with me now. Indeed. And I have to say, I think I've said it a few times, but uh, so tough one to rank. Because it is. They're very different movies. None of, I don't think any of them are amazing. And um, I, I had to go from different aesthetics uh, to appreciate them and rank them accordingly. None of them are amazing, and none of them. Blade comes close to being a catastrophe, but I don't mm. think I can quite call it that because. Yeah. Guillermo just knows how to direct an action sequence. Mm-hmm. He does, and I would never say otherwise. No, of course um, not. But, you know, there's nothing that I'm super passionate about or super like, that movie pissed me off, which mm-hmm. in the end made it a harder list to rank than, than would usually be. Yeah, you know, so, yeah. Um, we'll see if we match or not, but uh, it's going to be interesting. Uh, as my guest on this, the 44th episode of Rank and Review, 
It is your time to shine, brother. <laughs> so we start from number six, I your guess. Your least favorite. My least movies. favorite. Well, since you had mentioned it, my least favorite of the bunch was Blade Two. Um, again, it uh, for all the reasons we discussed. Uh, this hollow shell of a once spectacular actor. God, I'm a total dick for saying these things. <laughs> I'm gonna get like bad actor karma for doing it. You're not supposed to do that. I'm like, look, if you if you're sucking, don't don't suck. Anyway, it was it wasn't that great. There was um there was great action sequences. It was spectacular story wise. Yeah, it wasn't. Uh, I mean, it was very visually pretty. Gildo Tormo. Uh, I mean, I think uh, you can see elements of him shining, like say, like in the Hollywood Vampire Club, where it was yeah. pretty dark and gritty. I can when see. they first introduced the Reapers. That yeah, was a really cool scene. There yeah. was definitely neat elements there, but as far as like acting goes, visually spectacular, um, but just not very hefty. So six. Fair enough. And in fifth position? In fifth position, I went with From Dusk Till Dawn. This was another movie that was, again, the the what-the-fuck moment. Um, Interesting. I'd say see it once just so you can go, oh, yeah, that movie that did that thing where it became a vampire movie halfway through, and you're going, what? Yeah. Um, Go ahead and see it. Uh, I mean, if you like Tarantino and you love his work, see it anyway. I mean, Tarantino does his only major role, as as far as I know, uh, in a movie, other than his cameos throughout. Um, Again, slightly weaker story. They did two things, and they didn't do them well enough. In my opinion, they should have either stuck with one or the other. Or f- I, I, I found it very jarring that they were so delineated, separated so very clearly. I mean, if they were going to do them all at the same time, if there was going to be hints of vampires coming, then great. I wanted to see that. I didn't want it to be like donkey punched halfway through right. and and rammed dry, so to speak. I know that was really rude. <laughs> it's getting a little graphic in here. <laughs> but but uh, that's kind of a little bit how I felt as far as that one. So that's why it's at five. Okay. And in fourth position? Oh, in fourth position, we have Priest. Uh, again, I enjoyed it. It was a vampire, post-apocalyptic, dystopian western it was fun, it was a good romp, really visual, it told a story of a world that has gone south very badly, um, but, and, 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 uh, I enjoyed the, uh, what's, sorry, the main actor's Paul name? Paul Bettany. Paul Dentney. Bettany, yeah. Bettany, sorry. He, I agree, should have more of an acting role in it, more, he's got more caliber than that. Um, it was okay. It was fun. Get some popcorn. Enjoy it. I, it's not really a thinking movie. You can sit back and tune out, um, but it's not anything that you will remember necessarily for a long time. Right. And number three, In third position, we have Prowl. Now this one again surprised me. Uh, I I was going into it thinking it was going to be your classic kind of, and in some ways it was your classic cheesy horror movie. Pick which one's going to die. But they did some things that I liked that were right. Um, they kind of surprised me with the visuals, the main character ending up being sort of the, at the end, actually one of them and how at the end it was left as a loose end that was it going to be okay? Was it going to be fine? Were the vampires going to hunt her down? Was she going to go back to them? You don't know. Well, and don't hold your breath for a sequel because it I, ain't happening. <laughs> I don't expect a sequel, and that's okay. I don't. I don't need a sequel. That can be left open, and that's one of the things I liked it. So that's why it's at number three. Mm-hmm. At number two is Underworld. Um, again, this is the first of the series. Number, are we on three? 
Sorry. We're in third position, I think. Yeah, Prowl was third. Oh, sorry. Continue. I apologize. Prowl, Prowl was third. Number two was Underworld. And Underworld was... Again, I enjoyed it visually. I enjoyed that... Uh, I mean, I realize in other franchises that preceded it, like Underworld 2 and 3, it kind of deteriorated. I mean, franchises suffer from that sometimes. Um, but the first one, I really enjoyed the story. And I do... Uh, I did like the characters. And I... I just I think in again having to rank it, it's I had to rank it differently from the other ones because I went more on the visual and sort of the vibe feel some great acting some rich tapestry history of the lichens and the vampires spanning back and how actually the history wasn't what it seemed right. and was revealed at the end and I, I enjoyed that so that's why it's at number two and at number one I was Daywatch it and. Is. Daywatch was for me again. Funnily enough, this was the least kind of vampire of the vampire movies. But again, such a spectacular tapestry of visuals of these rich, crazy characters. Um, I just adored the world that they lived in and inhabited, and that the rules were there. And it was just, I just, I just, it just felt very rich and and luscious and and warm in a scary sort of way so that's why i enjoyed it so much yeah there is something very distinct about it and uh, mm-hmm. maybe it's the european flavor the fact that mm. it is a foreign film and that we have the further separation of subtitles but uh, i find it very immersive i'm starting to see a pattern of what particular movies because the last one i ranked at the top was a foreign subtitle subtitle. film i was gonna say uh spoilers because i also ranked Daywatch at the top of this list mm-hmm. <laughs> both of our vampire movies so far we preferred the uh ones made on the other side of the ocean yeah kind of interesting that's not in english because yeah. we just think they've done it better well the art house obviously it's better if it's not made in america <laughs> <laughs> no i just legitimately think that they watch is the best made and mm-hmm. the most complex story Mm -hmm. ironically it's the least vampiric as i know i know um but i'm gonna back up here yeah in sixth place we absolutely agree (laughs) yeah is blade 2 a lot of people love the shit out of blade 2 by the way but those people are plebeians i feel like i'm in (laughs) i feel like i'm in the minority but um it's okay you're allowed to be an elitist i'm gonna make this declaration this is the worst film guillermo del toro will ever make I'm okay with that. Even if, even like, I don't know what his future projects are. I don't know. Mm. Maybe he'll like go off the deep end and decide he needs to direct Garfield 3 or something. But <laughs> I, I just, uh, the man really impresses me. And I mm-hmm. refuse to believe that he will ever have to, this is a studio picture, you know. We, mm-hmm. We're doing a sequel to Blade. We need to find a visually strong director. And Guillermo was on that list. And you know what? That's a smart studio choice. Yes. So I get why he's here. I don't begrudge him that. At the time, he was happy to be working, I'm sure. You and know? <laughs> and if, if that was the thing that allowed him to go on to do The Devil's Backbone and Pan's Labyrinth, then I am grateful. I'm, I'm happy, you know. Um, but we're going to diverge a little bit mm-hmm. here, because in fifth place is where I put Priest. Ah, okay. I think that it's uh, the, the aesthetics are, are nice. I like the Mad Max meets vampire sort of vibe to mm-hmm. it. But I do think that it's like a mishmash of familiar elements. And there's, they feel like they just borrowed pieces from other movies and shoved it into this one. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it's almost, almost a sound off movie. Like, yeah. That's a meaner thing to say than anything. Because there are some ideas there. And they did, you know, they put some actors in. People Great were trying. Actors. But 
Um, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm thinking maybe it's because of the director, because I felt similarly about Legion. Like, mm-hmm. the, the nutshell of the story should have worked. It was a mix of familiar elements, but it seemed almost as much about the special effects in the environment as it was about the story. Yeah. And um, I'm a story guy. I think yeah. the story needs to be front and center. Yeah. And I think that's another reason why Daywatch ranked so high. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, so uh, in fourth position, which may seem like a, a lower than it should be, I put Prowl. Okay. Um, low budget, ambitious. I'm mm-hmm. curious to see like if these filmmakers go on to other things. I'm going to mention Patrick Severson uh, is the director and Tim Torrey is the writer. Mm-hmm. And uh, I hope that they get some more work out of this. I do. I mean, it's not perfect. It's not um, it's a little bit rough around the edges. But if it's one of their first films, it's not too shabby. Yeah. And they aren't playing with, you know, $120 no. million dollars here. No, right? not at all. Uh, so within the parameters of the box that they were forced in, I think they made a pretty damn decent vampire I movie. I think they did too. And if this is the diamond in the rough, if this is the one that's obscure of this list and you haven't seen it, I recommend you checking it out. Yeah. Again, I don't want to oversell it. It's not amazing, but it's solid. It so, is solid. So Prowl. Mm-hmm. Third position, I put Underworld, believe it or mm-hmm. not. Um, Kate Beckinsale, man. She'd be pretty. Oh, man. And, and I think that, for a large part, this movie is pretty. I mean, even though it's dark and it's got vampires and it's quite violent, it's well put together. Yes. The director knows how to direct action. Mm-hmm. It's well made. It's got a capable cast. It's maybe a little dumber than it needs to be, <laughs> but it is about a war between vampires and werewolves. I mean this whole trend to make everything super serious. I want a super dark superhero movie, right? You know what? Let's have some fun. Can we just relax a little bit and have some fun and acknowledge that some of these superheroes are kind of goofy and dumb? <laughs> you know? Um, I understand that we're still working in the horror genre, but I don't know. It's sort of like I said with the Friday the 13th franchise. In, in a weird way, the episodes that I like are the ones that are fun. In yeah. spite of the fact that they're brutally violent and they're about mm-hmm. people dying in ugly ways, the people making it were having a good time and yeah. they wanted the audience to have a good time. And that's how I feel about Underworld. It's not amazing, yeah. but it's a good time. Yes. So watch it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All the way in second place, and this will be controversial to you, and it, I guess I, I sounded like I was being harder on it than I was, is From Dust Till Dawn. Mm-hmm. Now... I am a Quentin Tarantino fan. That's oh, I, I don't think everything he touches is gold, but no. uh, I, I like him. Mm-hmm. I think that it's unfortunate that he wants to be an actor because he's a much better writer and he's a very good director. Yes. So um, I would almost rather he focused on that, but we all have a dream. And I, it's sort of an interesting artistic temperament. I, I kind of believe that all writers secretly want to be actors and all actors secretly want to be writers. It's one of these, like, grass is always greener on the other side <laughs> sort of things. But when you're in the position of, Quentin Tarantino, you can say, I'm going to be in this movie. And that might be a good or bad thing for your movie. Indeed. George Clooney is badass. Yes, There's he is. some really fun scenes. There's good humor to it. Uh, Michael Parks has got, shows up early in the movie as that sheriff who stops up at the liquor store. Yeah. And he's a regular in Tarantino world. There's, if you're into the world of Tarantino, this is a treat. Uh, and it's sort of off books. Tarantino didn't direct it. It's obviously in sort of a, a alternate universe. That mm-hmm. I get the feeling like, you know, Pulp Fiction and, and Kill Bill and most of his other movies sort of could exist in the same world, except yeah. maybe this one. Yeah. This one's just kind of like a little interesting aside. Yeah. But it's an, it's a detour worth taking, I think. But it will it will jar you. You will be like watching one movie and then another movie will happen, you yeah. know? And uh, some people have a problem with that. Yeah. 
But it's unique. And it is unique. And for me, unique gives points. Yeah. Which brings us, of course, to Daywatch. Mm-hmm. Um, visually amazing. I want this director to... I mean, he's still... I, I'm not sure what his next project is, but I'm, uh, I'm a fan. Mm-hmm. And uh, his name being attached to a project makes it worth watching. It was hard to explain this movie, like to, to, to nail it down into a few sentences. It's impossible. It's hard, especially because it's the second chapter in a fairly rich and complex world. But, Deeply complex mythology. But this is the smarter version of Underworld, as far as yes. I'm concerned. Like, this, was, this is Underworld if it was like 30% to 50% smarter. And less male flatulating vaginas. <laughs> exactly. Um, again, maybe the fact that everybody's speaking German... Uh, I. The, I believed all of the performances. I never questioned any of the delivery, mm-hmm. but I don't speak German. <laughs> <laughs> but I didn't. Uh, I, I believed everybody, despite the craziness. Mm-hmm. I believed a car driving up the side of the building for whatever reason. You know, um, it takes you someplace you haven't been before. And for a you know horror fantasy movie, I don't know what bigger compliment to give. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So day so watch. We were both the top and the bottom the same. Yeah, and the rest was kind of a jumble. Sort of all over the place, but that's okay. It's a weird list, like I said, and it's again, it's hard to be passionate about like the placement mm-hmm. of everything here. Yeah. I think that I, I, I'm, I'm actually the most confident about the number one and the number six. I yeah. Think on a given day, on a different given mood, the middle one might shuffle around. But... And I'm the same way. I, I think like because we're our numbers were like they were all sort of within spaces of each other. I uh, own Blade 2 because I'm a Guillermo del Toro completist, <laughs> and because I found all three of them. It was the all three Blade movies on Blu-ray for 10 bucks. Oh, yeah. Well, okay. I've reviewed terrible movies on this show, and I've never apologized for owning them, but I am so frustrated by the Blade franchise that I'm actually kind of ashamed that they're on my shelf. <laughs> <laughs> oh, goodness. Ouch. 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 Uh, Damien, is there anything you would like to sell to the people on the internet, anything you'd like to plug... Before we wrap this guy up. Well, the only thing currently that's happening right now is I did an ad recently for Incitrix, which apparently went viral. It's got over 150,000 hits. Uh, It's just about Saskatchewan uh, speaking, and it's kind of... The Huffington Post picked it up. Um, You can watch it online. I'm playing the boss at the end who chastises his minions for failing miserably and i get to show my imperious resting face yeah i think if you search either in citrix commercial or uh saskatchewan speak or saskatchewanese what was the A saskatchewan what yeah something like that <laughs> but, with a question mark yeah uh you can find that there uh interesting fun fact i used to work for Incitrix. oh there you go um they are one of these people, and again, I'm glad they gave you money, and I'm glad you got great exposure out of it, but Incitrix is the people who will call your house between 5 and 9 o'clock at night to ask you to participate in a survey that Indeed. you have no interest in participating in. But they're but very polite. I'm very happy that they gave you work, and I'm very happy that they gave me work for that brief time when I was really needing it. Yeah. So uh, I won't talk shit about Incitrix. Uh, we are grateful to them We for are very reasons. grateful to Incitrix, even um, though... They call my house and all that. <laughs> <laughs> the other the other thing that I'm doing is I'm working on I'm in the process of writing a TV pilot and it's on its way to its second draft. Um, so we will all wait in anxious and it's called Crow's World and it's a post. I'll describe it. It's a post-apocalyptic, supernatural, heroic horror. Sounds up my alley. Yeah, 
I think I think you might like it. I just uh, need to need to do a little more show, a little less tell, and get on that because I'm I'm coming to it as a screenwriter for the first time. So I'm going through my my theater background learning curve of Damien. Just sh- just show the stuff. Just read the fucking lines, actor. <laughs> right, film is a visual medium. <laughs> so, but otherwise, well, that's uh, it's exciting. That's the, exciting. The first draft uh, we did a read through. It was well received. Um, people. I have a term that I've created called creepening, okay. which is the creep that deepens. Uh, people wanted more of that. They were like heroin junkies. We're like, we want this. Give this to us now, Damien. Come on. <laughs> I'm like, all right, we're going to drop the bomb on you. So that's going to be coming up, and we'll see how that goes. Well, Damien, one to watch. Uh, friend of the show. Hopefully we'll have you back. Maybe discussing more vampires, maybe something else. But mm-hmm. I, really I would appreci- love to be back. <laughs> I really appreciate you taking the time to come back again. And I appreciate you having me here, Larry. Um, had you seen all of these? Were there any discoveries for you? Prowl was the only one that I hadn't seen. Um, and I I was surprisingly pleased by it. So that's why it ended up being as high as it was. And of course, Daywatch, I, I think that's probably one of the main reasons why I was like, <gasps> Daywatch! Because <laughs> I just, I loved that world so much. So. Well, thank you so much. I'm thank see you. you see you soon. All right, put a stake in it. That's it for this episode of Rank and Review. I hope you enjoyed that, and I hope you continue to listen. Uh, once again, I'm going to invite you to send feedback to Rank and Review at gmail.com and to please spread the word on the podcast. Um, I like to have listeners, I like to have positive reviews on iTunes and likes on Facebook. It, uh, it's the engine that keeps me going. So thank you guys so much for listening and please continue to do so. Best wishes from your host and random Canadian, Larry Parson.